You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see sisters soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. Um, I know that the woman at the well is not a, a figure that you're unfamiliar with, but hopefully tonight you'll learn some things about her that you didn't learn before. I just want to let you guys know before I switch the slide that the background of this first slide is actually a desert. Even though you see snow, um, it's, it's a desert in Arizona that was snowed on. It was like a total fluke. And um, so this is, when I saw this, I thought, oh, this is perfect, you know, because the woman at the well was obviously in a desert. And, but we're talking about winter and I'll come to that in a second. So the, this, this phrase, always winter, never Christmas, comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you guys, I don't know how many of you guys have seen or read uh, the books, the Chronicles of Narnia, they're my absolute all-time favorites. And um, there's a line from Mr. Tumnus, who's the fawn in the book. And he says that in Narnia, once the white witch has taken over, it has been uh, winter for a hundred years. And it's been always winter and never Christmas. And so to me, that really ev evoked the imagery of what was happening around the time of Christ, because it's been winter for the Jewish people for a really long time. Ever since the Old Testament canon had closed with the book of Malachi, they hadn't heard any prophetic word since then. And um, it's been winter for the woman at the well herself. Her, her whole life is one of just, you know, this vast desert that seems completely endless and you know, it's every day the same, right? It's Groundhog Day, every day the same, every day the same and until, you know, one day she's gone from the earth and she doesn't know anything else. But little does she know that Christmas is coming and he's coming directly to meet her right where she is. But before we do that, I wanna make it clear that Samaritans still exist today. You know, sometimes we read about people in scripture and we think that they only existed during Bible times and some of them did, but these people still exist today. So I, I made sure to include this in the presentation. So the word Samaritan is, comes from the root of the word Shamar, which means to protect or to guard. And there's a lot of information in 2 Kings 17 where we read how um, the Samaritans came to be. But today they live in the city of Holon near Tel Aviv, which is the capital of Israel. And in Shechem and in Samaria, which is, you know, it was called Samaria still back then. And um, right now it's under Palestinian authority, municipal rule and Israeli security control. They called themselves the Shamerim, which are the protectors or the guards. So basically they believe that they have the original Torah given to Moses and it was their job to protect it. Okay. And they claim to be descendants of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, which come from Joseph. And they were not taken into exile when um, the rest of the Israelites were. They stayed and then uh, other foreign entities came into Samaria and intermingled with them. Um, while the Jews admit that the Samaritans had stayed in the land and were not taken into exile, so of course it would have been easier for people who were taken away from their homeland to forget their traditions and forget everything that they had learned and forget God's word and stop practicing their traditions. Um, but they still don't believe that Samaritans are uh, actual Jews, 100% Jews, because they also followed 
um, the foreign gods of the people who were settled in their land after the rest of the Israelites were exiled, okay? And so all the things that they were supposed to protect, the temple utensils, the Torah books and everything else, um, they did keep them and they returned them back to the Jews when they came back to their homeland, but still by the Jews, they were considered to be outsiders, defiled, and it's still the case today. Samaritans are still not accepted by Jews as being true Samaritans. They're, they're, they're mutts, they're mixed. They're mixed race and they're mixed religion, okay? And so they still consider themselves to be um, the keepers and they view two mountains as holy. She mentions mountains um, in the scripture and uh, one of them, Mount Krizim, is considered the Mount of Blessing and they have their Passover sacrificial ceremony there. And the other, Mount Eval, is a Mount of Curses. And so they don't, they don't like that mountain and they stay away from it, okay? Okay, so here we are, Jesus, <laughs> talking with a Samaritan woman. And um, let's get into the passage. So now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. I'm stopping there just to pause for effect because he didn't have to go through Samaria, but he did anyway, right? So he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to drink water, to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee and he took a very unusual route. Samaritans and Jews were not on friendly terms here and they stayed away from each other as much as possible. And Jews would rather walk all the way around Samaria than even step one foot on that land that was considered to be defiled. So the fact that Jesus had to go through means that he had a mission there. And he you know, makes a beeline for this well where he knows that this woman will be drawing water at a most inconvenient time. And so she must have thought that Jesus was either not well in the head for talking to her, like, hmm, maybe he's, you know, a little bit th not there, right? A couple of fries, short of happy meal, you know? Or perhaps delirious from, from lack of uh, water or, or from exhaustion, right? He's got dehydration. He's, he's clearly like, he doesn't know, you know, he, he knows not what he does, right? <laughs> but he does know. And so either way, she was caught really off guard in a way that probably most of us wouldn't even be able to grasp unless it happened to us personally. You know, this idea that you would just be having a casual conversation with somebody that considers you to be like an outcast, right? So Here's, here's this next part, and I'm going to read it, and this is where it gets really interesting. So Jesus answers her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So this is really fascinating because you would think that Jesus would have a, an opportune moment here to, to say, you know, this is like an evangelistic moment. Like the person's like, I'm ready to hear the gospel. You know, take me through the whole Roman road. I'm, I'm going with you. I got you. I'm here. I'm, I'm ready to repent. You know, let's pray. And then you go, well, you know, and you kind of like interrupt it for a second and you just start talking about their personal life. Like that's going to make it better for you in that moment. Right. And that's what Jesus does. Like she's ripe. She's like, yeah, give it to me. I got it. You know? Well, so we think, I mean, she didn't really know what she was asking for. And perhaps she really thought it was just water and she would not need to come and draw physical water anymore and not need to feel embarrassed. Right. But as always is a feature of John's Gospels, you know, Jesus's conversations always take place on two levels, right? And we see this when, when he has this conversation with Nicodemus back in chapter three, which is the chapter just prior to this one. And he tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is all confused, like, wait, how can you go back in the womb? And how can your mother give birth to you again? That's impossible. Nobody's ever done that before. And Jesus is not talking about physical birth. He's talking about spiritual birth. So why, why couldn't that be true here and now? That maybe by referencing her five husbands, he's actually talking about something else, something a little bit more spiritual. And it just so happens that this woman's personal history of five husbands seems to have a parallel to Samaria and, and the people of Samaria. If you go back into 2 Kings 17, it'll tell you that Samaria was once part of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and it had set up its own monarchy and form of worship until Assyria invaded it and sent most of its inhabitants into exile, except for these people. And the king of Assyria brought pagans into Samaria to settle there. So the reference here, because I don't have it splashed up on the screen, is 2 Kings 17, 24. And this is what it says. Then the king of Assyria brought people from, and now start counting, Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and settled them in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. So there were five groups that settled in Samaria, all worshiping their own pagan gods. Now, how many husbands did the Samaritan woman have again? So Jesus always does things on different levels here, okay? So here's the thing that we have to remember. Samaria, just like the woman at the well, had had five spiritual husbands, none of them, which was the actual Lord himself. And in Isaiah 54, verse 5, it reads, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, he is called the God of all the earth. So we have here 
this, this, this thing that Jesus is doing where he's not here just to redeem this woman, but he's here to redeem a nation. Now, I want to settle this debate before I come back to this point. Because there seemed to be a misconception, and even in the, in the clip that we just watched before, that the Samaritan woman was somehow an adulterer because she had five husbands. And she's become an adulteress. But according to church sources, it was not until the Reformation that she was actually regarded as a sexually immoral woman. In other words, the Protestants made her into an adulteress. Before that, for most of the early church and medieval interpreters, the Samaritan woman was a careful, polite seeker, a sinner who once illumined, truthfully witnessed her faith to others. So we know she can't possibly be an adulteress because back in first century Palestine, and even here in the United States until just recently in the last 50 years or so, a woman could not initiate divorce. That was not a right. That was not a power. Even until 50 years ago or so, women couldn't even open up a bank account here in the US without their husband's permission. So where do you get off thinking this lady has left five husbands? It wouldn't have been her prerogative, except in extremely, extremely rare circumstances and like so rare that it never happened, right? So either the Samaritan's woman, her five former husbands had either divorced her, making her an adulterer really, or they had died. And this would have been disaster for her because of course, at the time, they rely on the patriarchal system to survive. She's not educated, she can't get a job. She just, she can't do anything, she can't support herself. So if her first husband had died and he had had a couple of brothers, then maybe she could have married the next unmarried brother to carry on the family name and so forth, right? This is an actual thing. So in Matthew 22, 23 to 25, the Sadducees asked Jesus a question. They said, teacher, Moses told us that a married man might die without having children then his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. There were seven brothers among us. The first one married, but died. He had no children. So his brother married the widow. Then the second brother also died. The same thing happened to the third brother and all the other brothers. The woman was the last to die, but all seven men had married her. So when people rise from death, whose wife will she be? They're trying to catch him because they don't believe in resurrection, actually. So when they say, when people rise from death, whose wife will she be? They're mocking him. They don't believe in life after death. And he just looks at them and he says, you don't know what you're talking about because there isn't gonna be any marriage in heaven. She's, got, she's not gonna be anybody's wife. And he throws them off guard completely. But this is a thing that was so common that the Sadducees could actually raise it up in a point that multiple men could die after having married the same woman. But little did she know even in her grief and even in her sorrow of having been passed on from, from man to man, that God was setting her up so that she could have this amazing and extraordinary experience with the Messiah. Also of note is that Jesus doesn't tell her, go and sin no more, like he does with another woman who's caught in adultery. There's another woman in another passage that's caught in adultery and the Pharisees all gather around her. They want to stone her. And she's, she's there and she's vulnerable. And Jesus kneels down. And he starts writing in the sand. And he says, any of you who don't have a sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then they all start dropping their stones and walking away one by one. And they don't stone her. 
He doesn't say that to this woman. So therefore, she was not an adulteress of that kind. In addition, Roman marriage laws stated that only the freeborn could marry and they could only marry another freeborn person. That meant that a bunch of people like former slaves or people who didn't have Roman citizenship weren't allowed to be legally married. So she could have had multiple husbands because there was no contract. There was no legal governmental contract binding her to those other men. And Jewish divorce was very simple. If a Jewish man didn't like the kind of rice that his woman cooked, I'm going to go find myself another one. It was that simple. Okay. So they were divorcing their women right and left. Now, if we understand that she is probably a widow five times over, and even now she has to seek refuge in the home of a man that she's not even married to, then more than likely she's feeling guilt and embarrassment more than anything else and shame. Because if you endure multiple tragedies, like all your husband's dying and things like that, then the belief was that God was punishing you for something. So it's very interesting in the, in the clip from before, she says, God's never given me anything. God was punishing you because you've done something wrong or because you were wicked. And so she probably believed it herself. And, and, and her daily question to herself was, what have I done that God would allow this to happen to me? So why is she the one labeled an adulteress when she's actually a victim? She's actually the victim of the culture and the customs of her times. Well, as you all know, the tendency is for people to blame the victim. And in this case, blaming the Samaritan woman for having five husbands, even though it's not her fault. So for example, when a woman is raped in any culture, in any country, no one excuses the rapist, but they don't go after the rapist as much as they go after the woman asking, what did you do to cause this to happen? Right? So were you dressed the wrong way? Had you been drinking? Did you give up the wrong signals? Right? And it's just prejudice. It's prejudice, however subtle. She's probably embarrassed. And this is what happens. She starts deflecting, like we all do when we get embarrassed when somebody puts us on the spot. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I am he. Right? So she's, she's embarrassed. She's trying to deflect. And she throws up a smoke screen about some, you know, random theological question. And this always happens when people have questions about God, but they're uncomfortable sharing their real, you know, personal private feelings because out of maybe out of anger or hurt or something that's happened in their past. And they always throw out a theological question like, well, if God is real, then why did this happen? 
Or if, if God is good, why is there so much evil and pain in this world? I'm sure you guys have heard that sometimes, even maybe with your own friends that are not Christian. When you start getting a little bit too, like you're, you're just touching them a little bit too deeply. And then they'll just throw up this smoke screen in front of themselves to protect themselves. And the amazing thing about this conversation is that Jesus didn't say, oh, come on now, you don't really care about that, do you? You don't, you're not going to really understand my answer anyway. He doesn't do that. Even though in verse 25, she kind of like, you know, waves him off and is like, yeah, all right, whatever. Messiah is going to handle it. You know? But he still, he still takes the time to explain. And, and this is the most comprehensive teaching on worship that we have from Jesus in the entire Gospels. And he gives it to her. And she doesn't even really care, maybe. And she can't really even understand what he's saying. And so she, she either doesn't understand or she doesn't care. And she's probably starting to realize again that she's talking to some crazy Jewish guy. And maybe she should start exiting the conversation before he wants more than just water. You know? She's starting to get really like, uh, let me get out of here. And then, of course, Jesus absolutely stuns her with his proclamation that she is talking to the Messiah right now. And he reveals to her, he reveals himself to her, even though he hasn't revealed himself to anyone else publicly. He even tells the disciples on a few occasions not to say anything about who he really is. Even the demons that he was casting out were trying to out him by telling everybody who he was. Oh, I know who you are. You're the son of God. And he kept saying, shut it. It's not my time. Right? Be quiet. But fascinatingly, and maybe because he wasn't going to be making any more detours into Samaria, he just comes out and tells her. And then this magical transformation happens to this woman, and she believes. It's truly the Messiah. Her winter is over, and Christmas has come. Literally. When was the last time you encountered Jesus in an amazing and fresh new way? Has it been through your worship, your prayer, uh, a service, a Sunday service? Because if you had, you would know it. If you'd encountered Jesus in an amazing and fresh new way and entered into God's presence, you would never be the same. And, and we just read God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I don't want to gloss over that. That in and of itself is a sermon. But my question is, have you been worshiping God in spirit and in truth? And if it's been too long or too infrequent, then maybe you should make this your prayer for today that you would encounter Jesus in a way you've not ever encountered him before so that you could have the same joy and experience just like the woman at the well. So now the disciples come back. Verse 27. This is hilarious, by the way. I always laugh. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? I can just see this right now. Like in this, in this black and white image here, in the background, you can see this one disciple with his, with his finger out pointing. 
And you can just tell that he's like, oh my gosh, we left Jesus alone for too long. Look at all the women that are coming to defile him. You know, they want to rescue him. Like, ah, we have to keep our Jesus pure. And then this other icon is so funny. <clears throat> you've got the disciples here in the background behind this mound. And you've got this disciple that's the closest to Jesus with his hand out, just being like, he's like giving his, the other disciples a side eye here. And he's like, what is happening here? <laughs> right? What is going on? And they're so confused. But they don't dare say anything because, I mean, hopefully Jesus knows what he's doing, right? I mean, after all, he called them. And they're all crackpots <laughs> themselves. <laughs> so, and so this really shows how stuck in their culture and tradition these men were, right? And, and how Jesus, he delighted in turning their worlds upside down. And so their traditions were hindering them from seeing the full picture of what God could do through them. And Jesus is leading by example, and he's about to have a word with them, okay? But first, back to her. So leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. It's a 180 degree shift <laughs> from who she was before and, and who she is now that she's encountered Jesus, right? So she's so now filled with this living water that he promised her that she leaves her jar behind. Now she doesn't even need physical water. She's already had her fill for the day. And that jar represents, you know, her source of life. I mean, you can't live without water in desert. And as she runs off to tell everyone she's ever met about who she just met, she went from avoiding people to running right at them and she probably scared them. I mean, can you imagine a reject and an outcast in your community just suddenly running up to you, a person who's never talked to you, ignored you? She was probably very lonely and very depressed. Now she's super excited and happy. It probably scared them just to see her smile. She probably wasn't practiced in this area. She had been living in winter her whole life. And now it's Christmas and she just cannot contain herself. Meanwhile, something else is happening. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. So meanwhile, his disciples are urging him, Rabbi, eat something. And but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> I have to laugh all the time. And, you know, we think the disciples sometimes are so like, come on, you guys, you can't be that thick. But really, we would do the same thing. We would do the same thing. And they keep, they keep saying, who brought him food? Who brought him food? And Jesus says, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe or white, some versions say, for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So this, this portion of scripture is like stuck right in the middle of this whole encounter with the woman at the well, and we cannot miss it. So in previous verses, Jesus had already begun to draw an analogy between spiritual food, the spiritual food of serving God, like I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And it's, it's food, right? They're fishing for fish, but they're gonna start fishing for men. 
And then, you know, physical food, he's separating spiritual and physical food. And he continues this analogy talking about these crops, which we would miss, being that most of us are probably not farmers. And so this phrase, it's still four months until harvest, is probably like a, a local proverb. So basically, is he saying that experienced farmers could look out at the season and know how far away the harvest time was. They could tell just by looking. Those same farmers could look at their own fields and recognize the right time to bring in the crops. So the disciples should have been able to recognize the right time for a spiritual harvest as well, or at least that's what he expects from them. So what the image you're seeing here is a wheat field. And when a wheat field is ready to be collected, the tips of the plants appear to be white. That's why in some versions of scripture says they are white for harvest. And, and sometimes we don't get that. We're going, why does it say it's white for harvest? And so, and the crowd of people probably had white, you know, women were wearing like uh, coverings over their head that were white, or the men had white caps or something on their head. So as the crowd is coming towards Jesus, once the Samaritan woman has told them about him, it, it's like the disciples could look at the crowd of people and see all the white on top of their heads. And they should have been able to grasp the, the meaning that, hey, these fields are white for harvest. These people are ready. And the harvest was right before their eyes. So while the disciples were in, were in town buying food, <laughs> this supposedly unclean woman is going to soon bring many people to Christ while the disciples have brought no one. So here's a question for you. Are you spiritually in tune enough to know when there's a harvest in front of you? Can you tell by the Holy Spirit when somebody is ready to receive the gospel? Or are you able to tell when someone needs to be prayed for to experience Jesus in a more powerful way? What can you do to sharpen your discernment so you'll be ready when Jesus places you in front of a harvest? So, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So here is where we see the Samaritan woman as an azer for those of you who are watching and looking out for that theme. Azer is a, uh, can be defined as help, right? Help coming from a place of strength. Many verses in scripture refer to God as our azer. He's our help in times of need and in, and in times of trouble. Here, as she leads her entire town to Christ, the Samaritan woman is an azer. She's birthing this entire town into belief from a single conversation in the right place at the right time with an unlikely evangelist and no miracles. Many sinners were converted. He doesn't say he did any miracles. He didn't show them any proof. Whereas in other towns, Jesus said, my God, if I don't do a miracle every day, y'all won't believe. That never happens here. And many more came to hear from Jesus himself 
to confirm her testimony because they already believe based on her. And not only that, but they realized something that Jesus' own disciples hadn't yet realized. Until Acts chapter 10, when, when Peter goes into Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile, and then the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius while Peter is uh, giving him the gospel. And then he says, oh, now I know that the, the gospel of repentance is not just for Jews. But the Samaritans already know this because notice how they call this man the savior of the world. Not the Jewish Messiah, not the Samaritan Messiah, but the savior of the world and for everyone who believes in him. And I can just imagine Jesus at the end of all this being like, my work is done here. What they reveal here, even the disciples don't realize yet. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.